You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures to everybody listening around the world this is the f11 photography podcast i am your host kevin deal along with your other host mr brandon gory Ah, uh, yes, we are back yet again. Welcome back to the F11 podcast. English is your second language? Uh, my fourth, actually. Uh, okay. My is first it, is gibberish. Apparently. So uh, we have a really special guest in studio today. But first, let's talk about our sponsor. We're going to talk about Luminar Neo. Harness, harness the power of artificial intelligence with Luminar Neo. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, AI hype going on around there, and a lot of it is BS. But uh, Luminar Neo actually has really good artificial intelligence modules. Uh, the mask AI, you can identify the difference between a person and a train and uh, a road or whatever. And so if you want to mask something, you want to dodge, burn, lift the shadows really quickly, you just hit the little mask AI button. It'll do all that for you. And then you can take advantage of the modules inside the program. Uh, they're very simple to use. A lot of you out there aren't hip to the Photoshop's uh, submenus and having to go in to find filters and things like that. The nice thing about Luminar Neo is that it has very nice graphical user interfaces. It's super easy to follow. You can do things like power line removal. Uh, they have a magic erase tool that does a really good job. If you want to get rid of certain things in your landscape, like a, a building or something like that that's in the way of your beautiful mountain, it'll do a really good job of it. And unlike the generative AI fill for Photoshop, it's not limited at 1024 on the long end it'll just uh, simply adapt to your large image you can shoot it on a medium format camera it doesn't matter so uh, if you look at the link in the description below uh, for 10 percent off or use the code kevin 10 on checkout you can get 10 percent off luminar neo today but that's all we need to talk about with sponsors we have in studio calling in from los angeles mr Andy Fam, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thank you. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, Andy and I, we we go back to the clubhouse days. So uh, he, he I, I used to run rooms in there, and I've, I'm up to podcasts now. So we spent a great deal of time uh, talking about many photography related topics. Now, what part of Los Angeles are you in at the moment? I actually moved recently more towards the Hollywood area. So I'm closer to Hollywood more, where more of the action is. Right on, right on. Now, uh, you, uh, Brandon, you are, are also from the Los Angeles area, the OC, right? The OC, yes. I was in that nice little nook. Uh, basically, if you've been in a Hollister, you know where the OC is. <laughs> I got to set this. I got to set the stage here. So when you go to Andy's Instagram, there is this, uh, shot or several shots of a band performing which is funny because i run across photographers who stress about like with their digital cameras like oh i'm going to use uh this particular iso and this particular lens and they're all stressed about using all this modern technology and in walks andy with a 116 year old five by seven camera pushing 400 speed film to 3200 to document a nightclub show What's wrong with you, dude? <laughs> seriously, like that's crazy. <laughs> no, seriously, like like that's that's insane. So, tell us why why do you like to do this kind of stuff with a heavy ass five by seven camera? Well, first off, I like to use like more antiquated gear, and one of my things is I fix up old, really old cameras and I actually bring them out to shoot. But sometimes I just feel like, hey, I'm going to challenge myself and see, you know, what I can do with this baby here, even though it's like over 100 years old. 
it's still usable and it's like you do, you don't really need like the latest gear or anything like that like you you could still do great photos photos with older gear and if i could do great photos with like an 100 year old camera like there's there's no excuse the it's the gear people yeah like oh you took that picture because of your camera it's like bro this 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 is 116 years old and i can document a band on stage uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that I, I can see some little blurs in the hands and stuff, but in general, these are really sharp images. Um, what, what, uh, what shutter speed do you have to be at, uh, with that kind of, cause I don't know what the maximum aperture is. I know that, uh, obviously with larger format, it tends to be a little darker, uh, usually, yeah. but what, uh, what, what lens did you use for these shots documenting this band, uh, inside of this nightclub so i used a lens uh i think well i i think it's like made either 1920s or 1930s it's called a schneider uh zenar and it's a 210 millimeters at f 3.5 and because of the lighting situation i did have to shoot wide open so it was a very, very narrow depth of field in order to get the maximum shutter speed. And the shutter speed I had to set around 1/30th of a second to 1/45th of a second. And mind you, this is actually a large format 5x7 camera. So what's unique about this camera is it's not like one of those that you're thinking of where you put your you put a curtain over your head and you take your time focusing. No, it's actually a giant SLR camera. So think of your like, think of the DSLRs, like your like the Canons um, from last generation, but just giant. Like we talking about like at least eight inches across by eight by eight. So more ridiculous looking than a Mamiya Seven. Yeah. But believe it or not, the camera actually has a shutter that can go up to one thousandth of a second, uh, assuming that you keep it uh, in tip-top shape and you have um, clean, lubricated, and adjusted it. That being said, I would imagine that you do get some looks from people when you're using that in the nightclub. You, so you weren't, you did handhold these at a thirtieth. You didn't put them on a tripod. No, no, no. Uh, tripods are not allowed. That makes sense. That's that's normal. We had a Jordan Groby. I think you remember him from Clubhouse. We had him in here, and he was talking about no tripods for concert photography and all that. But yeah, but I would imagine people you would kind of give you some looks like, "What the hell are you using over there, dude?" Oh, that definitely happened. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, it's actually kind of cool because people actually moved out of the way for, to let help me uh, get the shot more cleanly at times. Yeah, I've I've got a question because. You know, here in this process, uh, I've done, you know, a handful of event photography, uh, event photographs, and it is difficult to maintain sharpness and stillness at 1 30th of a second with in-body stabilization on a modern mirrorless camera. How I'm looking at your photos right now. How the hell did you get such crisp photos with a, with a, a shoulder mounted 116 year old camera like were, were you were you waiting for the the still moments was it was there like a, a timing thing that you you had built into your process because uh because this from what you're saying especially with the depth of field these shots seem logistically near impossible first of all gotta have beefy hands i'm just joking by the way <laughs> <laughs> uh, so believe it, okay so the camera is actually with the lens and the film back on it so i actually have a 12 shot back on it so i can wrap it reload while doing five by seven shots wow. it was approximately 11 pounds so using the camp i've been using this camera for like several years now it's like i kind of know how to counteract with the balance of the weight of the camera and like try to use the camera itself kind of like a um it's kind of like holding a rock with two hands and you're like just trying to balance between like making sure it doesn't wobble left or right like you're using the camera itself as a stabilizer 
Right. So the, so the added weight is actually uh, beneficial and actually helps with the shake itself. So if the camera was actually lighter, it would be disadvantaged because uh, it's it would be harder to counteract. At the same time, the shutter kick would be intense. So there's actually a crazy shutter kick in this camera. But thanks to its weight, it actually helps me out. It's a lot like, I mean, so in the world of handguns, not that I'm an expert on this, but in the world of handguns, you have handguns that are made of polymer and you have handguns that are made of steel. And the handguns that are made of steel have less recoil because they're heavier. The front the front muzzle on it's heavier. And so it doesn't move around as much. And so you're more accurate as a result. It's kind of the same thing with shutter speed and all that and just being able to keep your st stabilization happening, right? Yeah. Exactly. So... One thing I do want to ask you about this camera is first and foremost, you may have said this, but I may have missed it. And it's just, just in case you didn't for the listeners, what is the yeah. model of the camera? Who make, who made it? Uh, it was made in New York, uh, by a company named Graflex. Graflex. And you'd mentioned that you used a 200 millimeter lens. And for those people who aren't hip to five by seven, they might think of 200 millimeter as this really extreme full frame uh, a 200 millimeter telephoto lens, but what does that actually equate out to if you were to kind of take that perspective and translate it to the full frame world? So at 210 for five by seven, you're looking at 40 millimeters. So just slightly wider than a normal field of view. So it's between your 35 yeah. and 50 perspective. Yes. Yeah. I knew that. I knew that, but it was just for them. Cause I shoot obviously medium format and I have to use longer lenses to get wider, you know, cause that's the way it is, but I wanted to establish that. And you also shoot X-ray film. How did you get into X-ray film? Not, not, not. I know these shots aren't X-ray film, by the way, but I know that you do regularly shoot X-ray film. Yes, uh, that was a result of being cheap. <laughs> so, in the earlier days when I didn't have much of a budget, I always wanted to try out large format. But the problem was, you know. If you look at the offerings of Ilford and Kodak, you notice it tends to be very pricey, especially for the square feet, like for every square inch of the film. So I did some research and a friend of mine actually introduced to me um, saying like, hey, um, you should try out this this X-ray stuff. Um, it'll be harder to use. I don't like it, but do you want a box? of it and i said yeah i'll gladly take it from you uh so if you do the math on x-ray film you have to buy them in quantities of 100 sheets and they actually come in all sizes there's a four by five five by seven native there's also an eight by ten there's even bigger sizes if you need it and l let's use eight eight by ten for comparison for example so 100 sheets at eight by ten the company will literally charge you only 44 cents a sheet of film. So that's like 44 cents a shot before development. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you just need to practice with 20 bucks of it. Like if you practice with $20 worth of x-ray film, you'll, you'll be an expert in no time. That said, is it the most beginner friendly film? No, because it doesn't absorb the color red. The results do vary a lot. And they tend to be more contrasty because they don't absorb certain wavelengths of light. Now the x-ray film, you see, I'm looking at this shot that you took, uh, this portrait shot that you took in Seattle, Washington of this gentleman with glasses on. Um, what is, oh, is there... a beam, by the way. So he, he's a great friend of mine. Um, he does a lot of 3d printing stuff in cameras. So he's right a good person. my question to you is the x-ray film that you got, what is the base native ISO on it? Uh, box speed, so to speak. Okay, how do I explain? In my personal experience, it jumps around. So if you're indoors, it will knock itself all the way down to ISO 50. And if you're outdoors in bright light, like we're talking about like between the hours of 11 a.m. till 3 p.m., I have to rate the film at 400 speed because there's so much light out there that I had to cut down the amount of light. Um, just, just for reference, I'm using I'm using film that's green sensitive. So X-ray comes in blue sensitive and green sensitive. I tend to like the green one more. And then at golden hour, so we're talking about sunset here, uh, because golden hour is more yellow and red light 
the ISO performance of the film actually gets hit. So I would have to reduce my metering all the way down to ISO 100 during golden hour. That's crazy. Uh, so yeah, the, the reason you like the green over the red, is it because of it, because green is mid tonal and that's kind of uh, more terrestrial. What we see with our eyes, you find that you're seeing a more diverse range of tones in the mid tonal area or what, why do you like the green better? Uh, I like the results and how it translates the color green um, better. In my opinion, it, it's more in tune to what I like versus over blue. And green uh, ortho film is actually closer to like classic orthochromatic film from long time ago. Right on. Uh, that, that's actually information recently. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, before we move, I, I have another subject I want to move to, but before we move on to it, I want to keep it on the five by seven talk. You took the five by seven to some protests and did some photojournalism with it, <laughs> where some people just kind of like not, I mean, they were protesting and they just kind of turned and was like, Hey, talk to us about this camera. Do you get that at some of these places? Uh, so one of the protests I, I took was down in Hollywood. Um, and it was a BLM protest. And I remember I was trying to get a certain shot of the crowd and there was the truck. And I asked the owner of the truck, it's like, Hey, can I stand here and take some photographs? It's Cause I needed the height to get the crowd. Right. Right. And they're like, yeah, sure. But what happens was while I was taking photos on top of the truck, uh, there was a speaker nearby uh, that was talking, but some of the people in the back were looking at me instead. <laughs> and I was like, don't look at me. Look at, look at, look at the speaker. And uh, the owner of the truck kind of noticed what was going on. And he was like, hey, man, you got to get off my truck. <laughs> you're distracting the crowd. Yeah. People see your, your camera and they think that you're going to, you're going to start talking like this and you're going to have a, you know, like, they think it's like the 1920s. You're going to pull out one of those, those bulbs and everything. <laughs> you know, There's the, more. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Anywhere I go, there's usually someone standing still and looking at the, in shock and awe. Like, they're like, what the, f yeah. like, what the, what is that? You can cuss oh on this. Oh my God, it works. You, oh, you can wow. cuss on this podcast if you want, so you can drop F-bombs, oh, okay. it's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, so, so it's interesting because, because in our last episode, we were talking about becoming a portrait photographer and people who are introverts and have anxiety about breaking the ice and about approaching people and not being nervous. I would imagine a huge advantage that you have is if you walk up to somebody with a five by seven camera in a park, which you've done and say, yes. I want to take your portrait. It becomes a little bit of an icebreaker because you know, it's like uh, it's like if you're, you and your family are walking by one of those like places that have the little tin types or daguerreotypes or whatever, where they do the old West photos. You're like, Oh, that's cool yeah. because it's old, you know, like, like it's, it's, no longer just some some putt standing there with a you know some Nikon or Canon digital camera. It all of a sudden it becomes more important to them. They're way more likely to play along. I would imagine. Is that your experience? Actually, yes. Um, so it's kind of like an impromptu photo session on the spot, and people. Are, I notice people are more receptive to the to me when I'm holding my older cameras or film cameras in general. Uh, if I had my Sony with me, so for those that don't, that don't know, yes, I do have a digital camera. I do shoot a Sony. I, I get called a lot by as a film guy, but you know, I also shoot Sony gear, but anyways, so I do digital also. And I do believe digital has its place. So I'm, I'm not one of those pretentious film shooters, but anyways, <laughs> No, it's good. And I like the fact that you, you shoot, you know, all your projects seem to have intention behind them. Cause one of the things that Brandon and I talk about, we both have YouTube channels is that yeah. a lot of, a lot of YouTube photography channels, the photographers take boring, boring ass pictures. It's like, here's a picture of an abandoned gas station in Manitoba. And they take a picture of it and it's like, yeah, okay. I could have done that with my iPhone. You know, like, like, okay, just because it's on film doesn't mean it's better, you know, or, you know, like just, you still took a boring picture. It just has more grain, you know, so, but, uh, but no, I mean, I'm, I, I like that about your work is that you, you do shoot with purpose. Like, oh, I love the, the shoot you did 
you were at, I don't remember where you were. I think you were traveling around. I think you were like in the, in the Northwest. It was that same, same time. And there was like a picture of a tree that fell over and all the root systems were up. Kids were running around inside of it and everything. That's one of my, my favorite shoots you've done. Oh, actually the roots. Um, yeah, that tree decided to grow like suspended in the air. Like it didn't topple over, over okay. anything. Got it, it. It, was, it was a living tree that just decided, hey, I'm going to move myself over here. The dirt has eroded, but I'm going to still keep surviving and growing. And it's, it's just suspending itself, making yeah. itself like the cave. That was a cool shot. Yeah, I love that one. That, that was like more accidental. Um, that was a happy mistake because uh, I was out there. It was up in the Pacific Northwest, by the way, uh, in the state of Washington. And I was doing landscapes with that can with that same camera that we were talking about earlier and uh this kid jumps in out of nowhere starts playing on a tree and i thought to myself you know what this looks actually better so i waited for the kid to be like right dead in center and i took the shot yeah it's, I, it's like one of my favorite shots now looking looking at that photo with the kid for scale really brings the uh brings the mass of the tree to life and and it makes for such a great composition especially since the tree is so dark and the, the light reflecting off the skin of the kid really uh makes it a focal point um but i wanted to i wanted to ask uh we talked about your reasons for shooting the medical x-ray film and that it was affordable and it was interesting to you um back when you uh, say that you didn't have the budget for other film uh but seeing that you shoot these old cameras i want to know if you had the choice what film would you shoot on these uh cameras indefinitely if you could uh, uh price aside and why if price aside and assuming it, it still existed I probably try 400 speed slide film. Like, yes, there's slide film on 35 millimeter, but have you ever held a slide film shot in your hands? Yeah, like, yep. it's majestic. It's yes. really beautiful. It's vibrant and everything, and it's actually more difficult to shoot with because the latitude is much more narrower, much more narrower. Uh, if you make a mistake, so it's like a sense of like a bigger accomplishment if you actually pull it off. Not only that, you have like this nice giant negative that you could hold in your hands. That's like five inches by seven inches. That would be amazing. It's like raw. It's like raw data. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, when I was learning photography in school, when we got to the like we you know we just shoot on like T Max one hundred or whatever black and white film stock we would choose, but on the color side, our professor was like. You need to go learn. You you need to shoot slide film. You need to learn if you want to learn how to expose properly. Go learn on slide film. And so, uh, we're about to get into the subject of film prices. But film was so cheap. Even though I was a broke college student who worked at a Chinese restaurant waiting tables, I could afford to shoot a couple rolls of slide film a week, whether it was Fuji or Kodak, and get it developed and all that. And I attribute my ability to expose things now uh, properly to learning on slide film. I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, it's factually true. The latitude, it's like you either get a portfolio shot or you get nothing, <laughs> like pretty much. So, uh, but I want to, I want to shift gears to film prices because we did a oh, whole, yeah. oh yeah, we did a whole episode on it. And I know you know people at film companies, so you got to inside track sometimes. But uh, we were talking about how, like, I am tapped out on Portrait 800. It has, it's not a matter of whether or not I can afford it. It's a matter of whether it, the price has crossed the thresholds where I am like, nope. And I've hit that with Portrait 800. I'm hitting that with Portrait 400. I'm still able to find some deals on 160. But, and gosh, there was it the ectochrome or whatever, the slide film that they sell. Like I'm not even touching that. It's like a hundred bucks a box, but, uh, Ilford is what I've been shooting a lot of black and white with lately, mm -hmm. but, uh, give me your take on the developing landscape. So not talking about large format in particular, but with the increase of prices, I do notice like people, even Leica owners who spent like $4,000 or more on their cameras and lenses, 
are starting to talk about how the prices of film is affecting them. And I have noticed that digicams became like kind of like a replacement for them. <laughs> so that's actually contributing to the rise of popularity of digicams. Uh, in addition to that, uh, more and more people are moving on to black and white just because A, there's more availability to it. Uh, and B, they're generally lower priced. That said, it's like, even though prices are up, Portrait 400 still sells like hotcakes, like crazy. And people still are willing to pay, you know, up to like $16 a roll just to get their fix of Portrait 400. And it's funny though, because I'm, I'm working with two labs in order to recycle their uh, empty canisters after they develop film for 35 millimeter. And I've noticed for, for like for every 20 rolls of 400 speed film was developed like that, that that's all portrait 400. And then you'll be like one roll of uh 200 speed <laughs> uh, Kodak gold for every 20 rolls of 400, which is actually kind of crazy. Yeah. To look at the volume. So people are still paying these prices. Um, but I do notice that there's been a rise of alternative processes. So I'm no so there's been people buying cinema film and respooling it. It's called Vision 3, and it comes at different speeds, like 50, uh, two, 250, 500 speed. And for that, people would be buying like 100 bulk feet bulk rolls and roll it themselves, trying to reduce down the price between four to six dollars a roll. Uh, the the issue is with that film is you have to do a completely different process called ECN2 processing, and not every lab does it. But more and more labs are actually considering it now because they've noticed the rise in demand for ECN2 film just because it's cheaper color film. It's like, okay, so are you going to spend $16 on a roll of Portra 400 or Portra 800? Or are you going to spend between 4 to $6 for a roll of Vision 500T? And, you know, if you do the math, <laughs> you could shoot a lot more with cheaper prices. Yeah, that's, that's true. that's what people are as someone who's shot uh, Vision 500T uh, and going the Kodak 5219 route, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that that pesky little remjet layer? What do, what, do, what do you think about that? So I experimented with baking soda and other types of chemicals. Uh, there is a remjet remover chemical you can buy independently uh, from Sinstill or um, QWD. And it's basically their pre-bath, and that stuff melts the remjet off like butter. And it's really simple. You, you just pour it. It's reusable, by the way. So you pour it into your developing tank, um, let it sit for a while, dump it out. Then I would put water into it and shake it vigorously and then pour it out, and all the remjet just melts off like butter. I can see why it, it might be easier to do that at home. You know, it's the, I think yeah. the, major, the major reason a lot of developers don't want to go into the ECN2 process is the there's, you know, there's a risk. Uh, there's a learning curve, first and foremost, to systematically removing the remjet layer uh, with 100% safety of their machines, which that black wax will destroy their machines if it, uh, if even a little bit gets in. So I can, I can understand that, but um, would, is, is this a process that you indulge in yourself or would consider uh, specifically for 35 millimeter? I'm already developing film uh, in my own bathroom. So I already have all the equipment and such. I, I use Jobo systems in order to like semi-automate my processes and just help have the machine help me out here. Hi, this is Ethan Tran and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. <laughs> I do remember the older days of Clubhouse. There used to be way more film photographers, and then they just all vanished. 
They all got X100. And half of them, I remember half of them turning into uh, crypto bros all of a sudden. Yeah, no shit. And then they got their X100Vs, and I can't find one. (laughs) I I can't. Okay. You know what's so crazy about that? Like the used price of X100V is like now like $1,700 or more. And you can buy a Fujifilm GFX 50R. Just the body for a similar price. Like I find that really insane right now. Yeah, and you can also buy an XE3 or an XE4 and just go buy the pancake lens and get it for like a half the price. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Of the of the and, and no, no, no. it's all about the optical. Remember, once you have like a optical viewfinder on a camera, people go absolutely crazy for it. I guess like they're cool. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting how uh, hype drives the price of things. Like you're now, I will get this one right. You are the person who made me hip to Hollywood, buying up old vintage lenses, recasing them, and reselling them for stupid pricing. Correct. Is that what you've been doing? No, 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 no. That's not what I've been doing. You're the one who told me about it. I didn't realize it. Oh. It's not okay. So let me elaborate on that one. Uh, so filmmakers, yes, I am not a filmmaker, but filmmakers absolutely love older lenses and they try to get lenses similar to like you know more expensive cinema versions of it. So, for example, the Canon uh K35s is a cinema line, however. They're not that much different from Canon uh, FD lenses. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of c- cinema makers do is that they would buy a set of um, Canon lenses and they'll try to buy the ones that are like as fast as possible, like the lowest, like the wide open aperture. And they would send it into a specialty machining shop who by the way, hold the lenses for like more than a year and they would reconfigure them and rebody them to make sure they can survive like harsh conditions uh, while they're on production. So like if you send him like a kit, like a, um, a Canon lens, like an FDN lens with like a plastic body to one of these companies, like they'll, they'll come back to you like all, metal precision scaled all these things that a filmmaker would like and because these people have budgets like they actually are responsible for a lot of gear going up in price like a lot of people would say oh hype drives things it's like yes hype does drive things but cinema actually has the budget and they'll buy up whole entire markets of lenses if they want something and i remember a couple of movies were filmed on uh, K35s and people just went crazy. Uh, there's actually a YouTube video that explains this much better than I can from Media Division. Uh, it's like a one hour YouTube episode dedicated just to uh, K35s and Canon FD lenses. But, they, they can explain it the situation better than I can. But but the, the, the gist of it is you're taking like a couple hundred dollar lens and they're recasing it and reselling it for like five grand or something, right? Yes, that is correct because if you are making movies, time is money. So you would spend that much money to someone else who had who already waited more than a year to get their lenses remade so you can get the lenses now and get your production ready and up and going. It makes me wonder what other vintage lenses they're going to come for soon. All of a sudden, these lenses that we would get on eBay for 40 or $50 will end up going for like eight or $900 because you can't find yeah. them because someone buys them all up. Yeah, so the, the funny the funny saying is there's a company called Zero Optics that's known to do this, and whatever is on their page, which is actually growing, by the way, um, whatever they touch, prices will go up. Crazy. And a lot of it, a lot of it has gone up. Um, <laughs> they also made a line for uh, Olymp- uh, Olympus OM lenses too, so that's been gaining some popularity. Speaking of equipment, I noticed that. Uh, in some of your shots, you you shot with an XA, and then and I'm looking at your Instagram, of course, and then uh, the majority of your shots were uh, shot with the Graflex or um, a camera from the 30s or 40s, uh, as you mentioned it. 
And I was curious, um, what what differentiates your your use of camera? If you know you're going to go out a day and shoot, um, what 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 dictates in your mind and in your process uh, the gear that you use because it is so specific and so alien to um, most photographers? Well, I bring out my 35 millimeter if I'm like, hey, I just want to keep this really casual or it's like I'm not going to overthink about this. Or like if I in a situation where giant cameras are not allowed and I knew that beforehand, then I would just grab the 35 millimeter and, you know, keep my life easy. Uh, the five by seven stuff is like stuff that I rather like want to dark room print one day where I want a nice big giant negative where I can like manipulate and do stuff to the image in the dark room and make prints out of it. So it's like more like, Hey, I'm trying to make an art piece here. I, I want to put more effort into it. And I, I want to like, actually one day print it out make it look nice do all these things while the 35 millimeter is more like casual it's like i, I just want to walk around and take a snapshot of something so I, I guess the mentality is one is more of a photo shoot mentality and the other one's more of a snapshot mentality so when do you decide you want to do digital that's a good question when someone's paying you <laughs> Usually, I, I guess I already have my digital camera. It's my iPhone. I just whip it out when I just want to share a, a picture of my plate of food I'm having at the time. I guess more specifically, uh, when do you bust the Sony out? Hmm, that's a good question because I <laughs> I only been using my Sony right now to take pictures of my film. I've been using it to scan film. <laughs> <laughs> I went out and bought a bought a Sony and a macro lens just to take pictures of uh, a film. Speaking of, so I I use a flatbed scanner, and I have a Fuji GFX 100s. I have a Canon R5. I have a 100 millimeter um, um, macro lens for my Canon, and I might look at getting a, a macro lens for my my GFX. But do you find that it's easier? Is it more a convenience factor, or are you noticing that your scans are better with your Sony than they could be elsewhere? I'd love for you to comment on that. Uh, my I pers okay, so I used to use a flatbed called an Epson V850, which is like top of the line uh, consumer level flatbed scanning, and doing camera scans from a Sony A7R3 with a hundred millimeter macro lens. It's kind of funny. You just like literally described that just now. Uh, yes, the, sh the scans are significantly sharper. Like, I mean, like on point, like the, the scans with the Sony. Yes. Okay. Um, that's good by the way, I, I now remember why when I use my, um, so, okay. Going back to your previous question before this one, uh, just to answer it, I bring out my Sony camera when it, it's a uh, when I'm doing like a really paged shoot, and I I'm panicking that I don't want to lose something over it. So reliability. I bring that's when I bring the digital. It's like when someone actually pays me money for those shots. It's like okay, I'm bringing this as my second camera just in case because using. Film cam the, these types of film cameras, especially the the one from 1906, they do break down on shoots, and it happens a lot more often than I like. Well, you just you just need to do it the same way you do it in the digital world. Uh, you know, with your uh, Sony, you got two cards. You just need two five by sevens. You just got to take another one with you. You just got to go track down another 116 year old camera and just you know keep it in your little sling bag. <laughs> funny you say that because i have three of them <laughs> so I, I knew that which is going to lead me to my next point one of the biggest reasons i wanted you on here is because i get made fun of a lot for the amount of equipment i have but everything's relative how many cameras do you own oh jesus um <laughs> uh let's see here this is just like a rough estimation right now i could probably just run out of my living room right now and just look at the wall of cameras but um I'm looking at probably 45 cameras total. 
Yes, I have 12, so my record on this show is broken. I am no longer the one who's going to get the most shit. What do you do with 45 cameras, my dude? Do you, <laughs> okay. shoot, do you shoot all of them? He takes pictures on them. Do you shoot all yeah. of them in a year? I ro- First of all, yes, I do rotate around and around throughout, uh, between the 35 millimeters and wow. the uh, giant SLR and view cameras. As a matter of fact, I just added a brand new 8x10 to my collection that took me two years to like finally fix and wow. get a w- proper working condition. But that, that, that's, a, that's a different topic. Um, I Okay, so, <laughs> so most of my cameras aren't digital cameras. So I, I don't know what kind of cam- cameras uh, you're talking about, Kevin. Uh, but just I would all cameras. I, I own... So I own I own twelve total cameras. Uh, Two thirds of them are film, and about a third of them are digital. But anyway, I cut you off. Go ahead. Okay, so so th- th- there, right there, that's the issue right there. Once you collect one film camera, it for some reason starts multiplying uh, for reasons unknown. They're like gremlins. They, you feed exactly. them after midnight. You get them wet. But, Next thing you know, you got two C three thirties over there, and you've got a eight by ten over there, and uh, yeah, and, and so, then you have a fridge full of film. Go ahead. So yeah, um, for for my case, I, I tend to collect cameras that are like ni- from the 1960s or older, like really vintagey cameras. And at the time when I started buying them up, they were only literally 25 to 50 bucks a piece. It's fucking crazy how cheap they were back then. Obviously, the prices went up. Now that pe- more and more people are aware of Graflexes and things like that, prices have shot up to like you know, between $400, even $2,000 for a five by seven SLR Gosh. A home portrait. That's Hassle. That's Hasselblad pricing. Uh, but five by seven. Yeah, it is five by seven. That's true. Yeah. It, it, it's actually a camera heavier than the one that we were talking about earlier. And if you're wondering, yes, I do have two copies of it. <laughs> I could probably send you a photo of what it looks like next to a Hasselblad just for shits and giggles. Oh my gosh! That but but here's here's one thing, I will say, it's not hoarding if it's cool. <laughs> it's not hoarding if you use it. It's hoarding if you like. So when I I picture a camera hoarder, it'd be like in the in the the show hoarders, you'd have like a pile of cameras that you sleep on, and you have like a oh, a, yeah, a, a Wendy's cool. Biggie cup, you know, in between there, and like just like a cat foods because they always these people always have cats like it's just a given and then you have like cat food spread out all over your cameras that's that's hoarding this is just a a, a an obsession it's like someone who collects shoes it's just your shoes uh you know shoot five by seven and have cool lenses with them right yeah th- that's why i figured is like someone who collects like rolex watches and omega watches and in, in, in my case or leica's like that's probably more a more common uh example like like us tend to like jump into the history and details of the cameras and stuff like that, which actually gets to my next point. Um, so it's not just cameras that I collect. I, I have lenses and I that don't even get me started on my lens collection. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> that, that's where the problem starts. Um, actually, uh, yeah, you could probably say I have over a hundred lenses right now, mostly you- antique lenses, but you got me beat. I only have about 35. <laughs> but once you collect like all these different formats, your, your lens collect, collection goes out of hand, by the way, because it's like now you have lenses for different formats, different mounting systems and things like that. Uh, but let, let me give you a cool history example. Um, so I got this one brass lens that was actually made around the 1870s, um, verified, and it actually has a photographer's name engraved onto it and if you look up the name of it um it was like uh richard waltz uh he took pictures of union soldiers back in the 1860 back in the like 1860s and it's just cool like this one lens i have has a photographer's name engraved into it and it's directly correlated back to people and records that, that is time period that is so Fucking hard, dude. I love that. Oh, <laughs> All right. I mean, damn. I need to. T- I need to hit up Photo Deox. Like, hey, can you guys get a, a an adapter for for brass uh, film 
uh, take pictures of dead guys on World War or not World War Civil War battlefield to uh, a Fuji GFX adapter. That would be great. You know, see what we can get out of it. Although I wonder how how big is that? Like how big is that lens? Like what would it fit on? It would actually. Uh, so that lens would actually work on that eight by ten camera. I just finished repairing. I remember and, uh, if I really wanted to, I could probably put on the five by seven SLR. I remember you told the story about acquiring that lens, but I, I don't think it was yet completely ready for operation at that point. This was over a year ago, but is there a particular photo or is there a particular focal length? And I, and when I say focal length, I don't mean like a specific number, like 200 cause it varies format by format. But do you, when you, when you shoot, um, portraits do you prefer tighter shots so we're just use like a 35 millimeter standard here do you prefer like environmental portraits shot at 35 do you prefer a normal field of view do you prefer tighter do you have a kind of a, a kick you're on right now yeah so uh, personally i i like to shoot with 210 millimeters that seems to be like a sweet spot for me for a lot of things the problem is when you shoot 210 millimeters on the 35 millimeter camera or full frame sensor it's like you have any idea how far away you have to stand just yeah you have to yell that kind of thing so it's like on a five by seven it's like oh okay i keep that some that lens characteristics except i have a wider much wider frame to go along with it and because i have a wider frame with it it's just a lot easier to use i can stand closer and things like that now there, there is like math and nuances with it, but I'm just going to go based on my what I see visually. I, I'm no scientist. So if you're going to ask me for numbers and data and scientific thought behind it, I, I am not that guy. No worries. No worries. That, that's Brandon's wheelhouse. He loves the abstract. This is Jason Berkman, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. I would ask what drew you to film photography, but I think you're old enough that that's just what was around, right? <laughs> <laughs> um well actually i started with digital did you start with digital i couldn't remember when yeah, you started your journey and how the film stuff started was i was i remember freelancing for this one company uh, with my career and i was in like the waiting lobby waiting for the elevator and i noticed the photographs around me looked delicious like it was like really crispy it was really nice very pleasant like i liked what i saw but I didn't know what it was. It's like, okay, this this can't be, is this from an inkjet printer? Like, I need to know what printer this is from and stuff. And the lobby host was like, oh, I noticed you like, you're looking at these photos. Um, would you like more details? I'm like, yeah, what, what is this? Like, like why does it, does it look so good and all this stuff? And I remember he said, these are actually dark room prints. They're chemically printed with light and chemicals um, from film shots. And I was like thinking to myself, that's really neat. I, I want to print my work like this. Like this is something like you cannot experience over a computer monitor. You have to go to like a museum or like happen to stumble upon a dark room print yourself just to look at like, they are so nice in person. It's it basically told me it's like, hey, if you shoot on film, you can print your work too. Yeah. And one day maybe it's like just a shot you absolutely fall, fall in love and you want to save it and you'll you'll take the time to actually print it right. It's in, it's, and, in, it's interesting you point that out because a lot of people who are film shooters. They shoot film, but they've completely missed out on the other half of the experience. Because when I was coming up, I'm old enough to where uh, in college, not only would we shoot on film, but we'd go to an enlarger and we'd make a print. And there was a complete art form around that. And it's like, oh, you want to dodge and burn? Put your hand in front of it. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> like, you know, or grab a little uh, a piece of cardboard or whatever and dodge, right? And, mm -hmm. so, and so that's uh, – I think there's like a lot of film shooters out there who – you know, I guess when it comes to shooting film, they may even be what you could call an expert on it, but they have zero experience making the print, which I actually thought it was therapeutic when I would be in the dark room and I would just like throw on some music and I, you know, it was that whole, oh wow, you put it in the bath and you're waiting for it to, you know, reveal itself. And there's that whole, that whole process. 
And uh, yeah, it's just, it seems like that that's becoming uh, more of a lost art form in our industry. And that, uh, you know, like obviously it was one of the great things about, you know, when you and I were on clubhouses, we reunite with people who also do that. Like Tyler Shields obviously does it a lot, um, but he also sells his stuff for insane amounts of money. So he can do that and afford to do that because it's not a cheap process uh, when you're making prints that large. But uh, do you still, do you have your own enlarger at your house or do you go to a place locally in the Los Angeles area to get your prints made? So there's a place called 818 Community Dark Room uh, up in Van Nuys that you can actually rent or get private lessons from the owners there uh, to help you get started with uh, dark room prints. And they have all the equipment you need basically uh, for you know, for most people, unless you're like that one strange person with unlimited amounts of money who happens to have a 16 inch by 20 inch size film. <laughs> but that's a, that's a level um, I probably won't touch anytime soon. Yeah, fair but, enough. Me neither, man. <laughs> uh, but yeah. How has shooting on it? Because you said you started on digital, but how has shooting on film changed the way you approach photography for me i always shoot with more intention it has trained me to take less shots on a job even jobs where like nailing the shot is critical it's just a skill i've developed over time of no learn to do it with less because if you are truly getting better at photography you should be able to do it with less shots but that's that's how it's impacted me how has shooting on film impacted you as a photographer it's funny that you mentioned that. I'm actually not the guy that to ask about that because if I bring out large format cameras, I tend to do like 30. I actually bring out like 36 sheets of film and shoot it all. You're the guy. You're, you're the, if if they had drive mode on yeah, like, five like, by seven, you'd like, be the drive know, mode I guy. Hear, <laughs> I, I could hear like thousands of large format photographers screaming in anger of what I do because I <laughs> I just shoot so much but but remember what i said earlier about the x-ray film being cheap for like 40 cents a shot or even less yeah, like yeah. on five by seven it's actually 22 cents a shot by the way yeah. um yeah it's like i can do that if you know how to like go off the the beaten path and just like start experimenting but uh to be honest it hasn't really change from my perspective. And there's a reason why I picked an SLR for large format rather than a view camera, because for an SLR, it's kind of like, you know, composing similar to on the fly of moving subjects and stuff. I I don't slow down. I'm sure the 8x10 camera I just finished fixing will slow me down because that requires a tripod. But honestly, I still shoot similar between my digital and my film cameras, to be honest with you. Um, I just like, you know, it, it's a very fun experience. Like, l l let's not like shooting something that old is very fun and still fun to me. Like all the mechanical gears you have to go through, you're presenting to people who are curious. It's just, it's just more fun and people open up to me more. And I, I you're running, you're running the camera. It's fun. But then there's also, there's also gotta be that sense of satisfaction that you're creating something modern with something so old and people give you praise for it. like wow that looks so great and like yeah, yeah, yeah. you put this like world i put this uh, civil war lens on there and you know turn it out turn out great so uh, i would imagine that would give you lots of satisfaction um the other thing i want to talk to you about because we talked about your camera collection what's your film collection looking like these days uh yikes how many uh, how many refrigerators are you on? Still only one, or have you graduated beyond one? Uh, well, um, I'm using part of a refrigerator to store all my FP100C. I'm like halfway torn of like selling it or using it because if I sell it, I'm never ever gonna buy another pack of this film again. Um, for other things, it's funny you ask about my film collection. I I did an audit on it last week on actually, and I found out all my 120 rolls of Porsche 400 just expired <laughs> recently. So now I got to whip out the 120 cameras and start using it. it I don't know how to explain it, man. It, it's just too much film in there right now. What 120 camera are you rolling with right now? Or I, wait, wait, that's a stupid question. Plural. 
what 120 cameras with an S on the end are you rolling with right now? Uh, <laughs> mainly. So, mainly Pentax 6.7. And then I also have a Hasselblad 500CM. By the way, I bought most of these things back in 2017. In 2018, things were a lot cheaper back then. Yes. I, I just bought a Hasselblad a few months ago, so I can tell you all about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one that one would definitely hit make a dent in your wallet. Um yeah, so I have a Hasselblad and then I use the Pentax 6.7. I actually use the Pentax 6.7 more because it operates more like an SLR camera because of the shorter foc- focal throw on the lens. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier to track subjects. So I tend to use that more. Uh Wow. I'm, yeah. So like a lot of my photographs, I, I like movement. So it's like tracking is very important. That makes sense. Of your cameras, if you could, if, if I, ha- if you could go down from whatever you said, 80, I think you said 45, actually, if you go down from 45 cameras to one for personal work, not for paid work. We won't, we won't count the Sony one, one film camera and that's it. Rest of your life. You got to make the decision. Which one are you gonna roll? Five by seven auto, the the five by seven auto SLR, the, the the eleven pounder I was talking about earlier. Yeah, the, the rock with the two handles on the side, more or less. There's no handles on it. Oh, you wait. gotta balance it. You gotta balance it. You gotta balance it nonstop. There's no strap, no nothing. Your arms will be tired. It's a workout in itself. Man, that's nuts. That's crazy, man. Well, and that's actually my lighter cameras. <laughs> dang, yeah. Yeah, I, I see those dudes like with the cameras over their shoulder, like they're Paul Bunyan going to chop down some trees. And I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm good, man. Like, I'm actually I haven't got my I, I say dream camera. I say dream in terms of functionality. I, I don't know if it's gonna be a dream camera yet, but I'm looking at possibly doing the Mamiya Seven eventually, just because it is that that form factor of you can hold it, but it shoots a six by seven. Uh, I almost bought the Mamiya six, uh, the Mamiya seven, but that's when I ended up going for a Hasselblad five ten CM instead. Uh, Cause I wanted to, you know, they're, they're older. And my, my, my thought process behind it was these are getting older. They're going to eventually become a little harder to find in good condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they stopped making the Mamiya seven around the turn of the century. So there's, still a lot of newer versions of those floating around. They're just stupidly priced right now. And so I was like, I'll, I'll go the Hasselblad route first and I'll do the Mamiya seven at a later date. But I don't know if that was a good financial decision because Mamiya seven's not going down at all. Yeah. The, the general consensus is if the camera was all mechanically operated, as long as there's someone out there willing to learn old manuals to fix cameras and willing to do to do it for other people, um, they'll they could s- still be alive. Like they'll they'll keep running nonstop. Now the digital cameras, that's a ticking time bomb because I I, I bought a Nikon point and shoot camera that I enjoy with a zoom lens. It was really cheap. I only paid like ten bucks for the sucker, and it bricked on me. It, it decided to crap on me, and and I couldn't get it working again. And I'm like hearing these stories of people buying contacts T2s and T3s for like two thousand, like two thousand dollars. The ones that Sophia, because Sophia Coppola used it. Oh dear, or the Kardashians or something like that. Yeah, didn't you say that there was a a, a bunch of people out there like influencers drive like driving up the popularity of like Fuji GFX or some shit? I don't remember what it was you were talking. Not about. Not the GFX, but the X100V. Well, yeah, sure. th- that one for sure is stupid. That, that that is now its own little hive mind. Um, it might be the contacts T two replacement. Now I think about it in terms of popularity, because I'm hearing all these digital shooters who used to be like, yeah, big sensors, full frame GFX, are now saying, I want an X one hundred V. I'm like, you you didn't even know this camera last week. <laughs> what made you talk about this now all of a sudden? Yeah, and well, it's it's interesting because Apple is rumored to be coming out with a new camera with Zeiss glass in it. If, if there's anything that'll drive down the price of the X100V, it'll be something Apple comes out with. Everyone, I, be, they'll make it two thousand dollars. I'm sure. I mean, the question is, is it going to have an optical viewfinder? Because I'm finding out, like, you can spend less money on a Fujifilm XE XE series and then slap a pancake, like we talked about, but. Once you put the optical viewfinder on, on it, suddenly people are just going mad over I, it. I don't 
I don't care about optical viewfinders. But that's what they want. Yeah, well, I'm I'm like, can I see what I'm shooting? Yeah. Can I frame it? Yeah. Did I take a picture? Yeah. Did it look good? Yeah. Okay. Move on to the next thing. Look, that's oh. that's how I feel about optical. I mean, yeah. they're, they're cool, I guess, but whatever. And then you yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and a lot of like film shooters are you know exploring this realm, especially you know with higher film prices. They're now looking into the film simulations, and you know. It's kind of like a, in my opinion, this is just my opinion. Feel free to argue with me on this one, but I feel like it's kind of like a built in Instagram filter for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So you could like select like the film simulation mode you want and make some alterations to it. Uh, and people really love that stuff. And Rico is now introducing that on their GR uh, three series cameras. So mm-hmm. the, the Rico point and shoots. Their, their latest firmware and the latest model now has film simulation also in it. Yeah, I'll so shoot, I think that's a growing trend right there. As a GFX and X uh, owner, I have an XH2. I do shoot s- some film simulations. Like I like classic negative, but uh, I don't like their Acros. Like I don't, I, I don't like Acros. I think it's just kind of a boring flat film stock, and I think the si- the simulations are boring too. So I, I tend to do yeah. my own thing with black and white. But uh, but yeah, I just you know, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out because I I think the X one hundred V like if it, okay if somebody had an X one hundred V in stock for regular map pricing, I'd actually consider buying one. It, it is a convenient ca- camera for being small, having a decent you know maximum aperture and all that. But I'm not gonna like buy into the hype on it. I'm like no man, like I have I already have enough cameras as it is. Like I'm not <laughs> I'm not Andy Fam, but uh, I have. I have uh, I have enough cameras, and the only way I could justify something like that is if the the price uh, went back to where it should be. But if you really, you know, it would really get me to buy an X one hundred V is if they made an X one hundred V M for monochrome, like Leica does with their monochrome only sensors. Because yeah, I, I like shooting black and white. I'd love to have a I, I would love to have a camera that would force me to shoot black and white all the time. I think that would be fun. I think. There is a rumor that G- that Fujifilm was going to make a um, monochrome version of the GFX, but that's only a rumor. Uh, I don't want it with the GFX. Like, oh, uh, just just do it with the weather. Well, I would say it would be a better, more effective thing with a crop sensor because if you take away all the color information, uh, obviously the shortcoming of a crop sensor is that it has more noise quickly. And since the majority of your noise is coming from the color part of the sensor, having a monochrome only sensor, you could actually probably get full frame, like, you know, low light performance out of an APS-C because it's monochrome only. So I think that would be a way cooler way to go in my opinion. Well, if, if you want to go that direction, you can, you just got to be rich already. And that's a Leica. Yes. And uh, although I don't like the, like uh, the thing that pisses me off about the Leica, the Q series is like, okay, it's like a 28 millimeter lens, but if you want it to be a 35 or a 50 or a 70 something, we'll just crop it. And I was like, that's not, that doesn't mean that it's a 50 millimeter <laughs> lens because you're not getting the, the bouquet and the compression characteristics of being at those focal lengths. So it's bullshit. It's not, that's not actually what it does. Like just, just make a really expensive zoom that has a maximum aperture of like F2. Yeah, okay, make it a little heavier, but do that if you're gonna zoom. Otherwise, just keep it fixed, man. <laughs> like I, 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 I don't like. Now I get it. I shoot on a crop sensor. I shoot on a, a medium format, and I shoot on a on a full frame. So I deal with crop already. But sitting there marketing something that's six thousand dollars as being that it shoots at four different focal lengths when it doesn't, it's still at the same focal length it was at. You're just cropping it. Like, it's just ridiculous. So, uh, before we leave, uh, is there anything going on in your life right now? Anything you want to plug? Anything you're working on? Uh, I am currently working on trying to get 8 by 10 inch Polaroids up and running right now. I, I'm just missing a tripod for that heavy camera. And that's a, that's a whole another game that I'm putting myself into for that one. Um, otherwise, um, other than that, uh, shout out to my friend, Emily Swift, who, who owns the dark side film lab in the, in the East coast. Um, my, my friend, Abio for that wonderful portrait up in Seattle, Washington, uh, Coda, you're an amazing person. Thank you very much. 
and of course my girlfriend so right on man well i appreciate talking to you man it's always always a pleasure and uh i'll talk to you later dude all right talk to you later all right bye ladies and gentlemen andy fan That does it for today's episode. I thank each and every one of you for listening today. I want to extend a special thanks to Andy Pham, who has way cooler things to talk about with film photography than Brennan and I do. He kicks it up two or three notches over what we're talking about here. And so that is why we chose him to be our guest on today's episode. Uh, follow us, f11pod.com uh, for your web people. You can follow us at f11pod for your Instagram and uh, Twitter handles. Uh, and until next time, kids, chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.